This morning, we're going to spend our time considering the importance of setting up safeguards. And just to be clear, you know, a safeguard is something that serves as some sort of protective barrier or a defensive shield. And not only that, but safeguards are also precautionary measures which ward off impending danger or damage or even deception. Most of us set up, set up safeguards uh, in many different ways. For example, we set up safeguards on our computers. We set up safeguards on our phones by setting up secure passwords. And I'm sure that we've all set up safeguards at home, which could include anything from security cameras, locks on the doors, glocks within reach. And yet I can't help but to wonder how many of us are failing to set up the sort of safeguards which will help us to maintain a healthy connection with Christ Jesus. It's here in our text today where we actually find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his apostles to understand the importance of setting up safeguards. And, and he helps us to see how uh, his disciples could become those believers who are safeguarding their walk with the Lord. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that uh, we should set up safeguards against spiritual deception. Uh, secondly, we should set up safeguards against self-delusion. Thirdly, we should set up safeguards against secular distraction. Uh, fourthly and finally, we'll consider how to set up safeguards against sinful deviation. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Here we find our Savior helping his apostles to set up safeguards. Now, as you make your way to the 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was our, in our study last week when we learned about the way in which the apostles were arguing amongst themselves, and they were arguing about, you know, which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. What they failed to realize was that the majority of them were just a few hours away uh, from the moment when they would actually forsake our Savior for fear of being arrested. And it's for this reason that Jesus here is now taking the time to prepare them for this failure of faith. Now with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Luke chapter 22. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 31, here the Lord declares, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting the apostle Peter with this word of warning. And he did this by informing him about the spiritual attack that he was about to endure. And as we take a closer look at this word of warning, we must not fail to notice here that Christ Jesus, he was actually preparing Peter for a spiritual attack, which would be led by Satan himself. And just to be clear, you know, Satan is actually one of several titles that the Lord Jesus used in reference to this fallen angel who was uh, initially known as Lucifer. I'll remind you, it was actually back in Luke chapter 10, there Luke told us about that day when the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The Lord here was referring to the day when Michael the archangel cast Lucifer out of heaven. And it's in Revelation chapter 12 where the apostle John informs us that this fallen angel who Jesus calls Satan is also known as the great dragon, the serpent of old, and the devil, which actually means deceiver. Not only that, but John also tells us that there were angels who were also cast out with Satan. And uh, ever since then, you know, the devil and his fallen angels that we call demons, uh, they've been doing their best to deceive every person on the planet. Thankfully for us, the Lord has promised to provide every believer with his authority over these fallen angels. I'll remind you, it was actually back in Luke chapter 9 where the Lord called his apostles together. And it was at that point in time when he gave them the power of the Lord over uh, all demons. He gave them authority over the devil and his demons. Therefore, there's good reason for us to believe that we too have the same access, access to the same power and authority over the fallen angels. And not only that, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul also assures us that there's coming a day when the church will actually stand with our Savior as we judge the fallen angels, which includes Satan himself. This is the day that the prophet Isaiah described in Isaiah chapter 14. There Isaiah declares, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? In other words, Isaiah here, he's pointing to this day. There's, there's this day coming when we will see Satan. We will stand in judgment over all the fallen angels, including Satan, and we will see Satan for who he really is. It's at that point in time when we will realize that the great dragon who came and deceived the world was nothing more than a, an oppressive bully who took advantage of our fearful ignorance. Therefore, on this day, when we finally receive our glorified bodies and we stand in judgment over the fallen angels, you know, the the people of God will finally realize, you know, there was never a reason to fear Satan. There was never really a a reason to fear the devil and his demons, or or to put it more in the words of that modern philosopher, Ed Bassmaster, we're going to be like, psh, psh, whatever. That being the case, we should take a moment to consider the limited authority of the devil and his demons. And with this in mind, let's take another look here at Luke chapter 22. I want to focus your attention back on verse 31. Here the Lord says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, we must not fail to notice here that Satan is the one asking for permission. He's asking for permission to sift Peter like wheat. Or in other words, Satan was the one who sought permission from God so that he could shake up the life of the apostle Peter, you know, like wheat being sifted there at the threshing floor. And what this means is that Satan, he's not equal to God. We shouldn't slip into this delusional thinking, you know, that, you know, God and Satan are both equals and they're in this eternal battle against one another and who can say who will win? Well, we know who wins. The one who's more powerful God is the creator of Lucifer. God is the creator of this fallen angel that we call Satan. Therefore, there's no contest here. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised that, you know, Satan, who is not equal with God, actually has to come and subject himself to the authority of the Lord. Uh, Therefore, as we consider the way that Satan was asking for the permission to sift Peter like wheat, well, we have to grasp that every spiritual attack that we endure was initially permitted by the Lord. Proof of my point can be seen in the first chapter of Job. There we learn that the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. From this we can see that Satan wasn't able to attack Job until he first received permission from the Lord. And not only that, but we also see how the Lord placed limitations on what Satan was actually allowed to do. And as we consider the way in which the Lord allowed the devil to then attack his servant Job, well, I have no doubt that there are some who might be wondering, well, why? Why in the world would the Lord allow Satan to attack his servants? Why in the world does God allow the devil and his demons to attack uh, anybody on this planet? And in order to answer this question, let's take another look here at Luke chapter 22. I want to back up once again and, and begin reading at verse 31. Here we find the Lord saying, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Here in these verses, we find the Lord helping Peter to understand that God was allowing this spiritual attack from Satan so that Peter's faith might be put to the test. Not only that, but the Lord was also allowing Satan to attack the apostle Peter so that Peter might have compassion on the rest of those who experience a failure of faith. You know, it's real easy for us if we've never stumbled to start looking down on everyone else who stumbles. Yeah, that's just the the pride of life. If we've never experienced a spiritual attack and we've always, you know, in our own minds at least, thought that we've always done what is right in God's eyes, well, then it's real easy for us to start looking down on others who have stumbled. Peter was allowed to be attacked by Satan so that in his fall and recovery, he might then have compassion on those who also fell. In his relational restoration from the Lord, Peter was then able to strengthen the saints who also forsook their Savior on the night of his arrest. And from this, we can see then that the Lord has a righteous reason for the spiritual attacks that he allows. I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not saying we should pray for it. I certainly do not pray for patience personally. You know, I, <laughs> I don't want those kinds of challenges. And yet the Lord in his economy has a reason for the attacks that he allows in my life. 
He has a reason for the spiritual attacks that he allows. And to sum it up with simplicity, the Lord allows the saints to suffer these spiritual attacks so that we might learn to seek the spiritual strength of our Savior as we continue to fight the good fight of faith. And not only that, but listen, the Lord also allows us to suffer spiritual attacks so that we might be sanctified through these trials. Uh, With this as the goal, it's crucial for every Christian to safeguard our lives according to the instructions and the warnings that we find in the New Testament epistles. And I'll, I'll just give you one example here. It's actually in 1 Peter chapter 5, where the apostle Peter warns every believer by declaring this. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Listen, according to Peter, Uh, who was personally attacked by Satan. Listen, most of us will never experience a personal attack by Satan. Satan is just one angel. He's not omnipresent. And and I guarantee that Satan, he's more interested in in probably attacking someone with a whole lot more authority than any one of us have. And and yet we do experience the the attacks of of the demons, no doubt. And with that being the case, we must remain sober. Peter tells us that the best way for us to safeguard our lives against the spiritual attacks of the enemy is by staying sober so that we can be those diligent, vigilant disciples who are able to resist the sinful schemes of Satan. And not only should we safeguard our lives by staying sober and vigilant, but it's also crucial for every Christian to stay plugged into our fellowship of faith so that we might enjoy the spiritual strength that comes from the encouragement of other believers. I want to consider the warning that Paul presented in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's verse 1 where he declares, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, as we consider this word of warning, it's sad to say that we are watching this prophecy being fulfilled right before our very eyes. As a matter of fact, time would fail me to present you with the laundry list of all the churches that have set aside the sound doctrine of God's word, and instead, they're embracing the false doctrines that are introduced by wolves in sheep's clothing who are leading the church into the great apostasy. And it's for this reason that we must spend time setting up safeguards in our hearts against spiritual deception. And we do this by taking the time to learn the sound doctrine of God's word. And listen, not only should we set up safeguards against spiritual deception with sober thinking and sound doctrine, but we should also set up safeguards against self-delusion by making sure that we have a humble heart that remains teachable. Now with this as the focus... I want to continue to make our way through the text before us today. If you would look with me again here at Luke chapter 22, we'll pick up our study. Uh, I want to back up and begin reading at verse 31. Here the Lord says to Simon, 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 indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. As we take a closer look at this conversation, we must not fail to notice that the apostle Peter flat out dismissed 
the warning that the Lord was presenting. Just flat out dismissed it. No Lord are two words that don't go together. No Lord. What? What? <laughs> no master. Doesn't make sense. And yet that's what Peter was saying. Oh no, Lord, you don't get, you don't, you don't know who I am. You don't know how bold I am. Oh, the boldness. Christ Jesus had already revealed that Peter would need to return. He says, hey, I'm praying for your faith. And when you return to me, meaning after you've fallen from your faith and return to me, that's when you need to help your brethren out, right? But Peter, from a place of foolish pride, said, oh, no, no, I know better than Jesus. There's no way that I, I would ever fall away from the faith. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. Well, cock-a-doodle-doo, what happened? Yeah, he fell. And in response to this delusional disciple, Christ Jesus then presents Peter with more details. As a matter of fact, it's there in verse 34 where the Lord Jesus declares, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And from this, we see here that the, the Lord was not only certain that Peter was about to deny him, but he also knew how many times Peter would deny him and the frame of time in which this would all take place. And as we continue to make our way through Luke's gospel account, we'll see that the Lord was completely correct. But rather than receiving the prophetic word of God, the apostle Peter continued to reject the Lord's warning. And, and according to Matthew, well, the, the apostle Peter doubled down on his self-delusion. Luke doesn't include this, but let's consider Matthew chapter 26. Here the Lord Jesus warns his disciples by declaring, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble, even if all these jokers here stumble over you. I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, this is the part that Luke leaves out. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. The apostle Peter was placing his delusional beliefs above the prophetic word of God. The prophetic word of God says this, and Peter says, no, nah. nah, I don't believe that. And it's sad to say that his delusional thinking led the rest of the disciples you know, to embrace the same delusion. And as a result, they all rejected the, the, the prophetic word of God, as, and they insisted that none of them would be made to stumble. And yet, all but John stumbled and fell away. And yet they were all totally convinced that they would never deny the Lord. And yet it's also true that the majority of them were just a few hours away from a failure of faith. With that being the case, we should take a moment to consider the importance of learning how to set up these safeguards so that we might avoid the same sort of self-delusional thinking. 
With this as the focus, I want to consider the encouragement that James presents in his little epistle. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1. And as you make your way to James chapter 1, I just want to spend a second here pointing out that you know, those who follow after the feelings in their heart, they typically slip into a state of self-delusion. Or those who look at something that you see in the Word of God and then try to explain it away as, oh, no, that, you know, that, that, that no longer applies. Well, we've got to be careful because we might be interpreting the Bible from a state of self-delusion. And if it's a state of self-delusion, how do you know? If you're the one deceiving yourself, how would you know? Those who will align their lives to the truths of God's word, though, well, they avoid this state of self-delusion. I want to consider how James puts it here in James chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 22. Here James declares, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now here in these verses we find James, he's helping his audience to understand that the Christian who fails to embrace and apply the truth of God's word is simultaneously deceiving themselves. If you fail to apply what the word of God says to your life, you're engaging in self-delusion. The Christian who sits at home and studies the Bible, but then does not plug into a church, that's self-delusion. Because the Bible says, forsake not the assembly. And it's sad to say that we live in a day and an age when, a, when there's a lot of Christians you know, spending a lot of time studying the word of God, but then failing to apply what it actually says to their lives. We would do well to set up safeguards. The believer who wants to safeguard their minds against the deception of self-delusion should not only spend time studying the word of God, but we should also become those who are actually living accordingly by applying the teachings in the New Testament epistles to our lives. Now this brings us to our third safeguard that, that you know, we all ought to be setting up in our lives. You see, we not only need to set up the safeguards against spiritual deception and self-delusion, uh, but we should also set up safeguards against secular distractions. And to, to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 22. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's encouraging his disciples now to prepare for a time of persecution. With this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke 22, beginning at verse 35. Here the Lord Jesus says to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must be still accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. 
Now here in these verses, we find the Lord encouraging his disciples to prepare for the persecution which was about to occur shortly after his crucifixion. And while it's true that he initially sent them out without a money bag, a knapsack, or an extra pair of sandals, it's also true that he was now helping them to understand that everything was about to change. They were about to enter into a brand new dispensation when everything would be different. To prove my point, I should remind you about the prophecy that Christ Jesus presented back in the previous chapter. It's there where he described the days when the temple there in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And afterwards, he informed them that the followers of Christ would then be persecuted for their faith. With this as the focus, let's turn our attention back one chapter to Luke chapter 21. I want to focus your attention there at verse 12. There Jesus declares, Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which... All your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus describing the way in which his disciples would uh, you know, end up being persecuted for their faith. And while it's true that the disciples of Christ were largely embraced, during the days of our Savior's earthly ministry? Well, it's also true that the Lord already knew what would happen after the prophecies about his first advent were fulfilled. He already knew that the world would hate his church after the day of his departure. That being the case, he was already preparing them for those days by helping them to realize that they would no longer be able to rely on the kindness of strangers that they were trying to reach. Before, They were just able to travel around, you know, Israel and people would invite them into their homes and feed them and take care of them as they shared the gospel. And that's the way it was before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Afterwards, it would be extremely different. To further explain my case here, I want to take another look at the Lord's instructions found here in Luke chapter 22. Let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 36. Here Christ Jesus declares, he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. Now, just to be clear here, the Lord Jesus is actually referring to a prophecy, which is found in Isaiah chapter 53. It's there where the prophet Isaiah presents this prophecy about the day when our Savior would suffer the death penalty alongside of other sinners. And so while Jesus was sinless, he was crucified with transgressors. And it's there where Isaiah presented a prophecy, you know, about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the transgressors who would surround him. And according to Christ Jesus, this prophecy was actually pointing to the the day of his death. And not only that, but he was also helping his disciples to realize that his death and his burial and his resurrection uh, would result within a time period that, that it would all come to an end at some point, that it would all be fulfilled at a certain point. And, and afterwards, every believer would then need to maintain a money bag and, and have a knapsack on hand as well as a sword. Now, just to be clear, that word money bag found there in verse 36, 
It's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the, uh, these depositories that the Israelites would use uh, you know, for storing their own wealth. And so the money bag might be comparable to the bank accounts that, that we might use today. Rather than uh, you know, investing their money or pl- placing their money in the bank, you know, they would just uh, keep it uh, in these money bags. Jesus also refers here to the need for a knapsack, which was a, a reference to a leather pouch used for provisions like food and clothing. And let's not uh, fail to notice here the, the, the way that the Lord Jesus encouraged them to then, you know, even sell a garment if they didn't have a sword, uh, to sell a garment, get some money and, and purchase a sword, which would have been used for personal protection. As a matter of fact, uh, notice again there in verse 38, here the disciples declare, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, uh, the word sword here is translated from a Greek word, which was used in reference to like a large knife which would be used for slaughtering animals. Uh, Not only that, but the same Greek word was also used in reference to these small swords, uh, which were used as weapons for either attacking or defending against an assault. I guess we might refer to these weapons of war as assault swords. So they're more dangerous than the normal swords. I I imagine that they probably found two AR-15 swords here And so that's extra dangerous, you know, because they had probably bump stock handles and these sorts of things. Yeah, got to be careful with those. But as we consider the context of this conversation, it seems to me that the Lord Jesus here is giving his disciples the green light to use weapons for the purpose of self-defense. And so while most people, you know, on the planet at this point in time were carrying these swords, Jesus saying, yeah, you might need to sell a garment Get yourself a sword so that you can protect yourself. And this one disciple said, I've got two swords. And he says, perfect. You've got two hands. Go for it. Now, as we consider the way that Christ Jesus directed his disciples to secure these essential provisions, well, it seems to me that the Lord here is encouraging the saints to safeguard their lives against the distractions that arise, you know, whenever we find ourselves lacking the daily necessities of personal profit or or provisions or the means by which we protect ourselves. And while it's true that we all need a measure of finances and food and the ability to protect our freedoms, well, it's also true that these earthly provisions can easily become a secular distraction. It's for this reason that we must also safeguard our hearts uh, by uh, seeking God first before we start seeking all of these secular things. To prove my point, let's, let's uh, look again here at Luke 22, verse 38. Here the disciples declared, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, when the Lord Jesus told them that these two swords were enough, he was actually using a Greek word which speaks of that which is sufficient. It was sufficient to provide them with security. The same Greek word was also used of that which is in ample amount, which is to say that it was more than enough. That's not enough, but it's more than enough. The Lord Jesus here is helping them to understand that those who walk by faith with Jesus should then look to the Lord as we attempt to understand when enough is enough. They, they grabbed two swords and then looked back to the Lord and said, how's this? And the Lord said, that's enough. So when is enough enough? Well, I believe that's for the Lord to decide. I like the way that Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's there where he declares, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, 
with these we shall be content. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there uh, under the leadership of Timothy to, to safeguard their lives against covetousness, and we do this by learning how to be content. And while there's no doubt that we all have a need for the things of this world, which includes making a profit or securing provisions or the means of protection, we'd all do well to also realize that the constant pursuit of these things can quickly become secular distractions. Yeah, this, these can all be secular distractions. And, and with that being the case, you know, it's crucial for every Christian to set up safeguards against the covetous desire for acquiring more and more by just learning how to determine when enough is enough. But this is the goal. I encourage you to meditate on something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. It's there where he declares, Do not worry saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting us with this perfect plan, which helps us to know when it's time to acquire more and when it's time to be content with what we have. To sum it up simply, uh, let's stop overworking to get rich. And instead, let's spend our time seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as we do, well, he'll provide us with the guidance we need so that we can know, uh, so that we can know when enough is enough. And in this way, we avoid the secular distractions of this world that, that are, that are kind of stemming from those fears that lead us to think that I don't have enough money in the bank. I don't have enough food in the pantry. I don't have enough you know, guns in the safe. How do you know? How do you know unless you spend time seeking first the kingdom of God and allowing our Savior to guide us into when to acquire more and when he says, that's enough. Well, this brings us to our fourth and final point because listen, the believers, every believer should set up safeguards against spiritual deception with sober thinking. We should set up safeguards against self-delusion by making sure that we have a humble heart that's in line with God's word. And we should also set up safeguards against these secular distractions by seeking the instructions of our Savior so that we can know when enough is enough. But now we must set up, set up safeguards against sinful deviations. And to explain what I mean, let's, uh, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 22. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 39. Here Luke writes, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, and as he, as he was accustomed... And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation." 
And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's leading his apostles to the Mount of Olives. And it was there where our Messiah prayerfully prepared to fulfill his passion, which began there in the Garden of Gethsemane and then culminated in the cross of Calvary. But before he prayed for the spiritual strength that he would need to endure the pain and the shame of the cross, the Lord Jesus first encouraged his disciples to spend time praying as well. He encouraged them to to spend this time praying. And the reason why is because he already knew that they were about to be tempted to sin and deviate from the narrow path of righteousness. And for the sake of clarity, uh, as we talk about temptations here, that word temptation, which is found in both verses 40 and 46, well, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used of anything that entices us to sin. Not only that, but the same word was also used of any trial that tests the caliber of our fidelity and our integrity, our our virtue and our constancy. Knowing that the fidelity, integrity, virtue and constancy of the apostles was about to be put to the test, the Lord Jesus encouraged them to pray. He encouraged them to pray so that they might not give in to the temptation which would lead them to deviate from their discipleship. From this, we can see that those who want to set up a safeguard against sinful deviations, well, we should simply spend time praying. And I know it can be difficult to engage in the, in the practice of prayer. It, 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 can be, it can be difficult to spend time praying, especially when you're tired. You know, you close your eyes, you start praying to the Lord. Next thing you know, you wake up three hours later. I remember praying, you know, when I was, when I was on staff at Calvary Austin, you know, I would, I would spend time in my office praying and oftentimes fall asleep. And my pastor would come in and say, hey, wake up. And I, sorry, I, was, I fell asleep from sorrow. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's just so easy to just, you know, fall, find yourself in that place of peace with the Lord. And it's just so wonderful that you just can't help but, to, you know, wake up drooling all over your desk. So, <laughs> but, but the, the practice of prayer is so important because it helps us to safeguard against sinful deviations. It was there in the Garden of Gethsemane where our Lord and Savior spent time praying, praying that he could accomplish the will of his heavenly Father. And and no doubt in the the finite flesh of his humanity, he was struggling. He was struggling so much that he sweat great drops of blood. It's like he was living in Texas. But before he prayed for that spiritual strength, you know, he, he, he encouraged his disciples to spend time praying because he knew they were about to be tempted to sin. And, and as we consider this concept of temptation, listen, we are going to be tempted to sin as well. And those who want to safeguard against sinful deviations should spend time praying. We find the same Greek word, temptation. We find this in Luke chapter 11. Here the Lord Jesus presents the Lord's prayer, which includes this very simple request. And do not lead us into what? Temptation. The same Greek word. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's right. When we pray, we ought to spend time asking the Lord for help so that we might be delivered from the trials that would tempt us to sin. 
And as we spend time praying for the spiritual strength that we need to overcome every temptation, well, we can rejoice in knowing that we're not only setting up safeguards against sinful deviations just by praying, uh, but we're also seeking the help of the one who alone is able to provide us with the godly guidance that we need so that we can escape the temptations which would cause us to deviate from the narrow path of righteousness. To further uh, you know, grasp my point, I want to consider a challenge that Paul presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's there where he declares, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Christian, listen, those who begin to think that they're too strong to stumble, well, they need to wake up. Anyone who who thinks that they're so spiritually tuned in that they could never stumble, you're stumbling in that thought. That thought is a point of pride that will cause you to stumble. So Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Listen, we're all just a few bad decisions away from backsliding. And the apostles who were right there with Jesus Christ, you know, the ones who said, I'll never stumble. I'll die with you. I'll go to prison with you. They were all just a few moments away from completely stumbling. And it's true of all of us. We are, we are all just a few bad decisions away from backsliding. And knowing that we all struggle with sinful temptations that could lead us astray. Well, we would all do well to safeguard our lives against sinful deviations by spending more time praying. We ought to turn everything into a prayer. You know, we're, we're, we're called by, by Paul to pray without ceasing. And in that, I just think that what that means is that we ought to pray about everything. Every decision we make as we move forward throughout our day, we ought to just be constantly checking in with the Lord. Lord, should I, you know, what do you think about this, Lord? Direct me in this. Help me to know where to go. And as we pray, let's remember that we're praying to the God who will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. Isn't that incredible? Remember, all all tests and trials and temptations have to be filtered through the the, the permission of our God. And he will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. And, and not to say that you have the ability to overcome sinful trials, but rather you have the ability to turn to the one who gives you the strength to overcome every temptation. Because with every temptation, he's the one who provides the way of escape. If you think that there's no way for you to escape whatever that sinful temptation is, then what you're also saying is, God lied. Oh, sure, he says through Paul here that he'll provide a way of escape, but there was no way of escape. I I couldn't help myself. Well, yeah, in your flesh you can't help yourself. But in the strength of his Holy Spirit, he always provides the way of escape. And so that's the God we should be praying to, the one 
who will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation makes the way of escape so that we can stay on the straight and narrow road of righteousness. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, we should spend a second just considering the question, am I setting up safeguards in my life so that I can protect my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I failing to set up these safeguards? Am I setting up safeguards against spiritual deception by maintaining my sobriety so that I'm able to, you know, have the sober mind that's able to identify and avoid the satanic schemes of the enemy? Or am I failing to protect my life against the doctrines of demons because I still enjoy the intoxicating temptations of this fallen world? Am I setting up safeguards against self-delusion by setting aside my personal opinions so that I can actually become a doer of the explicit word of God? Or am I failing to protect my mind against those deceptive desires, which will always lead me away from doing the sound doctrine of God's word? Am I setting up safeguards against secular distractions by, you know, making sure that all of my earthly endeavors are actually in line with the guidance of God who helps me to be content? Or am I failing to protect my time against those natural tendencies that lead us to think that we must continue always storing up more and more and more because it's never enough. And I'm so afraid of what might happen tomorrow that I got to spend all of my time on secular endeavors today. Is that, is that my life? Am I setting up safeguards against sinful deviations by taking the time to pray for the spiritual strength that we need so that we can overcome every temptation? Or am I still just stumbling back into every temptation which so easily ensnare us because I'm just too proud to ask for the help that I need to avoid those sinful deviations. Am I setting up safeguards or not? Am I protecting my time with the Lord? Am I making sure that I'm walking in step according to his will? Or am I just still doing my own thing? With all of these questions in mind, I'd like to conclude this study by presenting you with the best plan for safeguarding our life. This is actually the plan that King Solomon presented in Proverbs chapter 18. It's verse 10 where he declares, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So simple and yet so effective. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Christian, listen, if you want to safeguard your life against the attacks of the enemy, then remember, the name of the Lord is our strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. If you want to safeguard your mind against the deceptive desires that are still hidden within our hearts, then remember, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. No matter the situation, regardless of the issues, those who will simply call upon the name of the Lord will be safe. Therefore, I encourage everyone, let's spend time every day crying out to Christ Jesus because listen, our Savior Jesus, he is our supernatural safeguard. Let's pray.